We here at High Heels in Politics want to thank Cincinnati-based Procter & Gamble for helping to close the pay gap between the U.S. women's and men's soccer teams when the company donated over $500,000 to the U.S. women. And once again, congratulations to Rose Lavelle and the entire U.S. women's soccer team on their latest world championship. Welcome to High Heels in Politics with Mary Ann Christie. This is the podcast where current and future leaders discuss the issues facing us in Southwest Ohio and beyond. Here is Mary Ann Christie. Hello, this is Mary Ann Christie, host of High Heels in Politics. Our spotlight on this podcast is to feature the issue of the success of U.S. women teams who compete internationally, like the Olympics. Our podcast will highlight a former U.S. Olympic team member and her success for women athletes. What a victory for the U.S. women's soccer team this year, who have won their fourth world title with Cincinnati's own Rose Lavelle making one of the two goals in the championship game. Their victory brought chants across the world. Equal pay! Equal pay! We say, why? Well, do you wonder who determines who plays on the U.S. soccer teams or any of the U.S. teams? What is the difference in the salary structure? And what about bonuses for winning the world title? Is there a difference between the sexes as to the rules, protocol, or the size of the field? Our guest today is going to answer some of those questions. She is none other than Susie Chaffee. You may remember her from the TV commercials. Hi, I'm Susie Chapstick. (laughs) Susie makes her mark in the U.S. ski world as a former captain of the 1968 Women's U.S. Winter Olympic ski team in Grenoble, France. She was ranked as one of the favorites in Grenoble. Hey, Susie, tell us about your early years in competing. Well, hello, my favorite cousin, and uh, making a difference in the world, wise and activist. I'm so proud of you and so proud to be um, podcast. And one of the reasons we don't have equal pay right now is lack of this kind of education that you are now sharing with everybody. So I'm so proud of you. So how we got started, we were so blessed growing up in Rutland, Vermont, to my family was, you know, Olympic family and got those opportunities. And I ran into those little challenges, kind of the way they treat women unfairly. Like my first coach when I was six says, you're a pretty little thing, but you're never going to make it. But I turned that around to, I'm going to show you. And I used that energy all the way to the Olympics. And it gave me such an incredible ride. It opened doors to, you know, travel and meeting, you know, world leaders and making a big difference to be able to help get equal pay right now. And Title IX and starting women's freestyle skiing after the Olympics. But it was such a blessing to have these sports opportunities. And that that gave you the chutzpah to do what you're doing today, the, the, the wonderful roots that we had from skiing, don't you think? Oh, yeah. But tell us about what happened when you made the U.S. ski team when you were at the University of Denver about trying to get to the uh, ski slopes. When I was trying to yeah get to the Olympics, I went to Denver University where my brother was one of the top 
skiers, brother Rick, and they offered me opportunities. And then they wouldn't let me ride in the team car because I didn't have NCAA insurance because I didn't have male um, organs, it turned out. (laughs) And so I had to hitchhike up to you know, 80 miles to get to the mountains after I did get some dry land training, but that was it. And so I was running into this brick wall and the the TV crew came by and said, do you mind if we ask you, you know, what, what you're doing, you know, hitchhiking? I have these signs. I can tell a thousand jokes, evergreen or bust. They said, oh, please, Willie Scheffler, the coach, give this girl a ride. Maybe the guys will even like her. And it turned out that this coach was saying that women shouldn't really ski race because it's bad for our ovaries. So that's one of the things I testified in Congress on, that, you know, that that's the kind of thing that they were saying back then. And when you actually straddle a gate, if you're a guy, you'll know what what is a little more vulnerable than uh, our ovaries. So (laughs) anyway, um, but that's what got me fired up to respond to the PE Teachers of America to lead the Title IX March in Washington in 1975. And my mother came who planted these seeds in you and me and so many of us, right? Mom Stevia, who was alternate on the Olympic team. So I set up the meeting at the White House to get it enforced because that's what you do after you lead a march. Then I found out later that that the White House didn't have the power to get it enforced. And it was thanks to my being the director of skiing at Mount Snow, Vermont, that my boss, Mark Fleischman, was a friend of Birch Bay who wrote the Title IX bill but couldn't get it enforced for six years. So he said while we were up skiing on the chairlift, you need to get Ted Kennedy to get this enforced because he's the head of the Senate Health Committee. He's a whale and the others are minnows. <laughs> minnows or something. And so I had just been skiing with President Ford on the Amateur Sports Act. So I skied with Ted Kennedy and Aspen. And on the lift, I said, you know, the right to sport is the right to health. If the little girls get opportunities to do sports, they're going to get their whole family doing sports, and then you're going to have a healthier America. At that time, Betty Ford, who didn't get those opportunities, you know, she was a closet alcoholic because they didn't have those opportunities to release pressures and stresses of being, you know, moms and all we have to do, which is a lot more than the guys. So Kennedy agreed that his sisters had those opportunities to ski and other sports, and they got their families healthy. So he put this under his wing, and then I was on the President Bush's seniors, President's Council on Physical Fitness, and I told him about this. And at first, he was um, angry with me, and I couldn't figure out why. And at our next meeting, he apologized to me, and he said, you are absolutely right, and he supported Title IX because... This is half of America, you know, being healthy, having those opportunities. And he was a great tennis player. And it was Billie Jean King's Women's Sports Foundation lawyers that helped get it enforced at all the universities. So this combination of this teamwork, and I must say led by the skiers, because Birch Bay and Kennedy are both skiers, <laughs> helped make Title IX get enforced. And the McKinsey Global Institute study I asked them what this did for the economy, 
The author got back to me and said it boosted the economy $3 trillion. That helped everybody, and it boosted the economy for the skiers because it created a new generation of skiers. And it also helped us have in the Atlanta Olympics. That was the Women's Olympics because that was the group that got those opportunities. But why it worked is because it had teeth that Title IX. That's what's missing today because even JFK, he wrote the first equal pay bill in 1963, but it didn't have any teeth. So it means an incentive or a penalty if you don't obey the law or people ignore it. That's what's one of the main reasons we don't have equal pay today. And many of these bills today, you know, are brought up and are missing that. Later on, I will tell you what the key is to be able to get this passed now. Susie, you were the first woman to be a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee. You made a big splash in Grenoble in that silver ski suit. I remember well because I was there. Do you want to talk? A, <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about how that fashion changed everything in the ski world? Well, good point because actually, fashion saved my butt. Our Olympic team was so poor we had to borrow from the Norwegians to get from Yugoslavia to the Grenoble Olympics, and then they just guessed at the wax. Well, I was this big hope for America, one of the top downhillers in the world. We missed the wax so bad I was five seconds behind before I got to the first gate. So I started thinking about why we were so poor and why actually a, a one of the Doug Burden, who was a former top ski racer in, of America, said this is because we have the government country supported countries. Um, Well, the athletes from the government-supported countries are getting opportunities, but the ones from the U.S. and some of the other capitalist countries don't. Avery Brundage is ignoring and forcing the rules on us because he sold out to the socialist countries. Now, now you want to mention again, who was uh, head of the uh, Olympic Committee? Okay, Avery Brundage, who you, who was earlier a head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, became the head of the International Olympic Committee because he sold out Americans to the socialist countries to get that position. So our athletes, they enforce the rules on the U.S. and other uh, capitalist countries, but not on the socialist countries. So we were so poor that we had to borrow money from the Norwegians to get to the Grenoble Olympics, and then they just guessed at the wax. And I was five seconds behind before I got to the first turn at the Olympics, which was one of the most saddest, you know, I ended up crying at the bottom and saying, we, you know, radioed up and said, we missed the wax, we got to change it for the others. So that's what got me thinking about how we could make the system fair for everybody, level the playing fields. And so they put me, because of wearing the silver suit, I still had so much press that they put me on the U.S. Olympic Committee. And, and I was speaking up, so they thought I could, you know, maybe they would shut me up and do this internally. And so I worked internally and externally to unite the world athletes behind changing the Olympic rules so they were like the ancient rules that were open and honest and gave the athletes who won an equal salary to the high-ranking official. So instead of this amateurism, and I went to Olympia, Greece, independently of Senator 
the basketball star, Bill Bradley, who was a Rhodes Scholar, to find out why the ancient games were so successful. And with Muhammad Ali and Prince Albert's uncle, Jack Kelly, this team of us got together and figured out how to reform the Olympic system to make it fair for everybody and restore the integrity of the ancient Olympics to the modern, because it's the greatest force of peace in the world. Over a four-year period, I led this, I did all the legwork <laughs> to organize this and went, I went to Sapporo Olympics and launched it there on behalf of our inner circle and, and the German Olympics. And I set up the first meeting with a new head of the International Olympic Committee. But the head of the German Olympic Committee agreed that the U.S. was the laughing stock of the world that we were getting screwed by the system. And he helped us, Willie Dame, set up the meeting with the heads of the power blocks around the world for me to bring this message on how we could basically save the Olympics because they were so scandal-ridden, they were a joke. It was called shamaturism. That's how we got this done to have the rules that they have today that all these heads of state want to come and be a part of it and stop wars like South Korea and to give the athletes a piece of the pie because everybody was making money off of us athletes while we were sacrificing our lives and yet inspiring the the children of our countries to do sports to stay healthy. In fact, Title IX was said to have saved the country, our country a trillion in health care because it gave those opportunities, to, Susie, especially to women. Yeah. Susie, do you want to talk a little bit about you kind of develop ballet skiing and what about this freestyle skiing? Because you competed and won three world titles as a freestyle yeah. champion. Yeah. Yeah, even against the men. <laughs> remember when I was a, a little ballerina, I danced on point when I was like six. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, <laughs> I can remember when MGM came after you to be to be in the movies, and your mother kind of said yeah. no. Because no, I said, I don't want to grow up. I, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to grow up naturally, not to be that star stuff. Yeah. Well, you were a very opinionated little five-year-old or six-year-old, but I can remember being at the house and talking about that MGM contract. But tell us about right. the ballet skiing. No, but anyway, because I was a ballerina as a child, I had these fantasies of dancing down mountains. So after the Olympics and with all this press I had gotten, I was invited to do these ski films like the Mobius flip with, um, and then Willie Bogner later on. And I was experimenting, bringing balletic ideas I learned into ski ballet and also making the costuming exciting and that would show these beautiful lines of the ballet. So we, I helped launch it on, and bring it to the American public on The Tonight Show, the Johnny Carson Show. And then that's when I said, you know, I'm competing against the men and actually I've been tying for winning against them. But all these talented women are sitting at home because they can't afford to come because there's no women's division. And so that helped me get Colgate to sponsor a women's division. And then I helped it make it a, a, be an Olympic sport. But it was my roots in Rutland, Vermont, where Remember, they had music on the intercom of Pico Peak, and we started linking our poles together and spinning each other around, and that was what was the most fun thing to do. 
So I brought those ideas together. And then my grandmother, Nana, was a figure skater and her Scandinavian heritage had music to it. So I brought in the music and all these elements to help start freestyle in 1970. And it was so much fun that everybody was being creative and it was beautiful and the camaraderie was wonderful, even though we had nice camaraderie on the Olympic team, but then, you know, I helped it be an Olympic sport, freestyle. I just want to remind our audience that 1968, the Olympic stars happened to Ben Jean-Claude Keeley from France. Jean-Claude, yeah. Jean-Claude. And remember, and for ice skating, it was Peggy Fleming. She won the gold. But that silver suit gave me almost as much publicity as they, but in the past, they would have control over the athletes because they would take their medals away if they spoke up. So Avery Brundage, when I presented our new rules to him in in Sarajevo, no, in Sapporo, said, if you perjured yourself, which one of the rules was that you couldn't attend a training camp for more than 30 days a year or get a scholarship, you know, I couldn't get any of those things. But he said, well, even so, if you perjured yourself, if you broke those rules, you must return your medals. And I said, but Avery, I have no medals. I have only principles. <laughs> and he got up and he was so mad. And he was still trying to get my medals away for years after that because he didn't get it. It's in trivial pursuit that I'm the only one that Avery Brunner tried to get my medals away that didn't have any. But I had the power because of that publicity to then do all these wonderful things for Title IX and reforming the Olympic system. So yeah. isn't that wild? So that's why I said fashion saved my butt. In fact, in 68, after the Olympics, 120 cities were burning from the African-Americans feeling, you know, left out of the American dream and, and the Vietnam War and, you know, which was all about greed, these arms dealers. And anyway, I was allowed to, uh, what was I was asked to join a team of Olympians to go into the various cities and to give clinics uh, to all these kids in the in the ghettos that we the inner cities were called ghettos then and I said oh that would be beautiful and they said but we want you to wear your silver suit (laughs) and do the pre-press this is for Humphrey (laughs) so I would come into the cities and I would get front page with my silver suit and tell about all these heroic Olympians that were giving these wonderful clinics, and that stopped the burning of all those cities. So I learned how the power of sports and heroes and fashion can really help the planet. (laughs) And what people may not realize, our audience who can't see you, but Susie was really beautiful dynamic woman. She became a New York Ford model. She modeled for Revlon, Damon Yogurt, and so forth. You were inducted into the 1988 United States National Skiers Hall of Fame. So you've and you're really... the only one that made it to Ishpeming, Michigan. Oh yeah, I yeah I went <laughs> I went up to Michigan. It was so Michigan. hard to get to. <laughs> no, yeah, I've been a kind of a follower of Susie. <laughs> I was once her babysitter. That's why. <laughs> so Susie, let's just finish up. Tell us uh, what you're doing right now 
for equal pay. Thanks to the U2 and um, that whole movement about showing that as a result of women not getting equal pay since 1963, since that first equal pay law was passed, that trillion dollars has funded all this abuse in the in the workplaces. So our team actually with the skiers, because the McKinsey Global Institute said this is a Time Magazine cover story and CNN that if women got equal pay, they would bump up the U.S. economy by 4.3 trillion and the world economy by 28 trillion. That would afford America and the world to have a renewable-powered U.S. and world, which, according to Stanford's, that we're in the sixth extinction cycle. And this would be the insurance that we could lower all the carbon and CO2 so that we could save our country, so to save the future generations of our children. So this is not only just for to help 17 million children who go to bed hungry because of their single moms not getting equal pay. This would turn all of that around. And it is thanks to these women's sports stars like these soccer women and Billie Jean King, who, by the way, she got the U.S. Open to give equal pay in 19, since 1973. So there's these, set, uh, these precedents that have been set that will help these soccer players, led by your wonderful Cincinnati star, Rosie Lavelle, to be able to have a congressional hearing to make this fair for them as well, because they are world heroes yep. and heroes to our country and our girls. Mm-hmm. And I want to um, add to this that Cincinnati's Procter & Gamble has donated to bring about that pay equity. Well, bless them, because... It was Kimberly Gamble who said to me that I'm her Title IX hero, and she is the head of the, she and her husband led the, used a lot of that money from Procter & Gamble to start the Thrive Network, the Thrive Network movement, where these billionaires are helping save the planet for the children. So they're my heroes. And, and for her to say I'm her hero is like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> so... Well, we're getting so ready. you guys have done so much, and we figured out the the way to get the teeth in the title in the Fair Pay Act that just passed the House is to require these corporations who are given these tax cuts, even though some of them are making three hundred, the CEOs making three hundred times more money than their workers, they would be able to keep those tax cuts if they gave women equal pay, like some of the other countries are doing. Also, health, women, child care, leave for stay-at-home husbands helping to, health care. So all these things are affordable and a renewable-powered America if women can get equal pay passed in the Senate. You want to educate all your lawmakers that this is really cre- critical for the insurance of having a, a bright future for our children that even the Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin agrees with the other Secretary of Treasuries that we need to act, we need to mobilize reducing carbon similar to World War II 
to be able to make sure that we don't we have a catastrophic future. So we have a bright future for the children who just marched around the world because they protesting that our leaders are not listening to the scientists and their futures are going down the drain. Everybody's now waking up now. And so this is a beautiful opportunity to make this happen for the United States. And because of our influence in the world, we can help get that spread this around the world to so yep. that the world gets $28 trillion bump to be all renewable powered. Yeah. Right, because right now also we're the laughing stock of the world because we're 57th in equal pay in the world. Well, so- Susie, well, I want to <laughs> say we're kind of coming to a close. Today you are now the founder and the leader of the Native American Olympic Foundation. This foundation is designed, it's kind of a bridge between the different cultures, the American Indian and the Americans themselves. How can our listeners get in touch with you and make a donation to NAOTF, which is the Native American Olympic Foundation? Team NAOTF is Native American Olympic Team Foundation. Got to have all those words. Yeah. Dot org. That's how they could make a donation. This would really be so helpful because the Native Americans by Walt Disney um, trying to save the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympics that had no snow asked the tribe, because he did the movies about Tinkerbell and the nature spirits and the tribes have been saving themselves from droughts for eons. He asked the Washa tribe in Lake Tahoe to do a first cross-cultural snow dance that brought them 12 feet of snow that saved their Olympics. And that's what they've been doing to help ski areas for 59 years, which I'm documenting and spreading across America, having native ski programs as a result of also these ceremonies on these holy mountains around the world that the tribe showed us how to do. We had in 2019 record snows in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and that cooled our oceans. So by helping our foundation, we can help create, keep this bridge because all our ancient ancestors gave love to Mother Earth. So they're helping us remind us of that, which is key to inspiring all this snow. And saving our snow is critical to saving our wonderful sport, but saving our planet and cooling oceans, which this did. That's how people can really help by giving us a donation, naotf.org, to help continue this really vital effort. That um, And I thank you so much for helping bring this to light because the BBC, by the way, is coming here to Puerto Vallarta, where I live right now, <laughs> to um, bring this message to the whole world. And so, but you were the first. <laughs> okay. Well, thank so you. Thank you. you, Susie. And we'll look forward to seeing the documentary from the BBC. Thank you for taking the time. Love you. Bye. Bye. Well, High Heels and Politics, this was an interesting podcast. And it's proving to be very successful due to our guests such as Susie. But we've also had congressmen, county prosecutor, state representative, Supreme Court justice. We'd like you to share this podcast with friends and acquaintances. You can subscribe to High Heels and Politics 
by going to your favorite podcast app and just hitting the subscribe button of High Heels and Politics. It's that easy and it's free. We and High Heels and Politics, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your comments. You know what? The 2020 presidential elections will be here shortly and we need your input. Don't fail to not contact me as soon as you have any ideas. Contact Mary and Christy at highheelspolitics at gmail.com. My thanks to the outstanding work by High Heels and Politics Team's producer, Pam Gross and Ryan Kulik. And again, my thanks to Susie Chaffee, our world top skier. High Heels and Politics with Marianne Christie is produced and engineered by Ion Community. Music by Sharad Sate. Subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts.